This episode is brought to you by Haymakers Community Engagement Consultants. If you run a business or nonprofit working to make the world a better place, then visit wemakehay.com to see how Haymakers can help. This episode is also sponsored by RuralOrganizing.org. RuralOrganizing.org has been equipping and empowering rural changemakers since 2012. Visit RuralOrganizing.org for more information. Since January 1st, Montgomery County, Ohio has had 163 overdoses just since January 1st. They have run out of room for the bodies. You know, the coroner's office has to now rent out rooms in various funeral parlors. And those funeral parlors have to have naloxone on hand because they might get a desting of fentanyl and overdose themselves, you know, from somebody's clothes or something. Americans are living through the worst addiction epidemic in our nation's history. Today, more Americans die each year from overdose than from car accidents and firearms, with many of the worst casualties happening far from the media spotlight in rural communities and small towns in the flyover states. Today's guest is Dr. Kathleen Friedel. Kathleen is the author of The Drug Wars in America and has spent nearly two decades examining how U.S. policy impacts our addiction crisis. I'm Matt Hildreth, and you're listening to Flyover Folk, exploring the progressive arts, culture, and politics of rural America. But I would like to start with with a big picture and just um, maybe kind of define the terms. So, you know, I hear it called the opioid epi- epidemic or the addiction crisis or whatever. But uh, I'm curious to, one, have you explain that and then um, and, and what that means? And then, two, just a little bit of background on on your work in this area. So. Opioids refer to anything that can be derived from um, the poppy plant. And so typically heroin is the natural and morphine are natural products of um, opium poppies, but the opium poppies carry alkaloids that can be made into synthetic um, opioids as well. And the raw materials are things like oxycodone, um, which the brand name for that is typically OxyContin. And then hydrocodone is another alkaloid-derived synthetic opioid. And the brand name for that is Vicodin. So opioid is inclusive of an entire category of drugs that act in a similar way on the body to a stronger or lesser degree of potency. And the reason I called the piece that I wrote the oxy-electorate, meaning the oxycontin electorate about the November 2016 election, is because I see the the ground zero for the opioid epidemic, and I don't think anyone disputes this, was the approval of oxycontin, um, which is derived from oxycodone, the approval of oxycontin in 1996 by the Food and Drug Administration to treat chronic long-term pain. In the past, things like morphine, And once upon a time, things like heroin were used to treat um, end-of-life pain. So that's typically called palliative care. And when people are dying of things like cancer, they're in excruciating pain. And, you know, doctors will prescribe morphine and things like that. So palliative care is one traditional category. And another category that opioids um, were used in and are still used in are acute pain. So if you have surgery or your wisdom teeth extracted, doctors or dentists will prescribe a short course of opioids. But in 1996, um, Purdue Pharma, the manufacturers of OxyContin, persuaded the FDA that their pill was less addictive because it had this slow-release technology built into it. And that moreover, when somebody is in genuine pain, they had this theory that 
the pain canceled out the addictive properties. And even though we now know that the data presented to the FDA um, to support those claims was very faulty, the FDA approved OxyContin, including for prescribing for long-term chronic pain. And that's kind of ground zero. You know, we've bracketed up several magnitudes of order and built upon that. But from the years 2001 to about 2009, prescription painkillers and prescription painkiller abuse was really kind of the beating heart of the opioid epidemic. From 2009 and 2014, what happened is, um, and actually Sam Canones describes this in his book called Dreamland, which I recommend to all your listeners. Um, And (laughs) Dreamland is uh, based, the story of it is based in Columbus, Ohio. So I specifically recommend it to people who are in your neck of the woods. And what what the story Sam tells is people transitioning from prescription painkiller use and abuse over to heroin. And at that time, in this kind of catastrophic coincidence, uh, black tar heroin from Mexico was being revolutionized in terms of its production networks and the facility with which um, cartels and not even cartels, but rancheros could get black tar heroin up to the United States, two places like Columbus, Ohio, and also critically its potency. So it was becoming much more powerful. So from 2009 to 2014, we shifted up a gear, if you will, in the opioid crisis. And we started to see, you know, record-breaking levels of overdose. And remarkably, and very tragically since that time, we've bracketed up another magnitude of order as a result of illicit synthetics that have come in mainly from China. Um, And those illicit synthetics are fentanyl. And now, unfortunately, we're seeing carfentanyl. So there are these three different layers of the opioid crisis. And um, it's not necessary, even though it's common, it's not necessary for somebody to start out with illicit prescription um, painkiller. That's that's historically how right. the trajectory has gone. But now heroin is so available um, just from, you know, texting a code on your cell phone, you'll get it delivered to your door just like pizza. Um, so people enter into um, the the opioid, the world of opioids and illicit opioids in different ways. But we still do see stories of people who went to the doctor or went to the dentist and got a 30-day prescription of um, Vicodin or OxyContin. And lo and behold, a year later, um, they're addicted to heroin and, you know, committing armed robbery. Yeah. So, so can you, can you walk me through that a little bit? Like just, just how does that work? Is it, is it that there it's, it's, it's the, the, the chemical reaction inside the body that creates the the addiction or i mean we don't have to get into a lot of the biology but i have a i have a basic understanding of biology so i don't know if i would understand it even if you if you explained it to me you know too compl- with too much detail but um can can you just explain that part a little bit so opioid opioids work on receptors in the brain and i've heard doctors refer to um this as the hijacked brain and i kind of really like that term because it it really conveys um that once once the brain becomes hijacked, if you will, once the opioid, um, once the brain receptors have become um, accustomed to opioids and that stimulation, 
the brain then dictates to the rest of the body to get this drug, you know, to do anything to get hold of this drug. Um, so I think hijacked brain is a good way of describing how opioid receptors, how opioids alter brain receptors. And I think it's not commonly known in your neck of the woods where people are all too familiar with the opioid crisis. It probably is known. But I think outside of places like Ohio, it's not commonly known that it takes two full years for brain receptors to recover from opioid damage. So people who think that, you know, one 28 day stay in some kind of treatment center will work for um, people who have opioid use disorders don't understand kind of the magnitude of, um, you know, what's needed to recover from this. And I think that's one of the things, I mean, you haven't mentioned it, but one of the things that um, the Affordable Care Act repeal jeopardizes is precisely that kind of long-term relationship that a patient needs with a physician in order to maintain, you know, a um, suboxone regimen that will help the brain fully recover. So it's not hijacked anymore and not dictating and telling this person what to do. Well, I want to get into the, you know, solutions uh, in a second, but, but I want to understand a little bit more about the problem and through listening to the media, um, and, and just anecdotally, it's often described as a Midwest or Rust Belt or rural uh, epidemic. And I'm wondering if, if you could talk a little bit about that. Where, where does that come from? And just, you know, sociologically or, or whatever, why is it uh, impacting rural communities? So I have a I have a different geography a little bit. That first bracket that I described when the opioid crisis was largely affecting um or was largely to do with prescription painkillers, I really think New England was ground zero, and in particular, Massachusetts. Um, and there are a lot of different reasons for that. I think um, the the high numbers of, of veterans and active soldiers um, is one very important reason. But that second um, magnitude of order of the opioid crisis, when opioids shifted to black tar heroin, West Virginia, Ohio, and Pennsylvania are, you know, in the second awakening in the 19th century, we called the area most affected by the second awakening, we called it the burned over district. And I sometimes think of that phrase when I think about the Steel Valley and I think about Rust Belt America um, and the coal miners in West Virginia, I think about it as just the burned over district because doctors were, um, first of all, you had pain um, clinics that were over prescribing to people who, you know, had genuine pain and were confronting genuine pain as a result of hard labor. Um, these people were greatly exploited by, um, you know, some very suspicious and dubious doctors. But even more broadly than that, you have a culture in medicine, which still exists, that is very, I think, negligent when it comes to the risks posed by opioids. So when doctors were told by Purdue Pharma in their solicitations and in their promotional material that OxyContin, for instance, was not addictive and you could prescribe it and relieve pain in your patients, many doctors and many physicians embrace that, I think, just on the fundamental principle that 
Purdue Pharma was saying something the doctors wanted to hear. Doctors have a lot of patients in pain, especially primary care physicians. And it's a, it's a very difficult problem. Different pain management solutions require time-intensive clinical visits, and they require a lot of adjustments. Um, typically, the things that insurance companies are not great at reimbursing, like things like acupuncture, are very good pain management strategies. So in lieu of that, the doctors learn all they had to do was write a prescription, and that was easy. And the insurance companies always reimbursed for that. So it was very seductive and alluring, um, I think for good reasons, you know, for good intentions. It was seductive and alluring, the story that that Purdue Pharma was telling to physicians and to dentists. So I think that's one component of it. The, the Ranchero story, the story of black tar heroin, um, as Sam um, Quinones tells it, has more to do with um, these kind of small scale or medium scale heroin producers and distributors didn't want to take on any of the well-established heroin networks in big cities like Chicago, LA, New York, Washington, DC, Baltimore, any of the places that you can think of as having well-established heroin networks, these ranchero producers were like, we don't even want to carry a gun. We want to go to places where these gangs are not. And so they would select cities like Columbus, Ohio. In fact, your city was specifically selected um, by some of the most innovative rancheros who, you know, Sam tells a story in his book when the rancheros stopped targeting methadone clinics to solicit new customers and started targeting pain clinics um, that were overprescribing OxyContin. And that's a really critical shift in that second stage of the opioid crisis I was describing. That's really, this is actually really helpful for me because um, it, it makes a lot of sense when you, when you, when you put it um, hi historically, I think. Um, so what, what is your experience with, with the research in it? What is the, um, what's the scope of what, of what you're, what you've been looking at? So the biggest thing that I want to convey to your listeners is that this is, without question, the single worst drug epidemic in U.S. history. And I want to convey that to your listeners, not because they don't know it. They know it. I want to convey to your listeners that I know it, <laughs> that I, as an East Coast person who lives in a city, understand that they are in the grips of the worst drug crisis in U.S. history. And in some of the counties, you know, there's one county in Ohio called Brown County, and it's pretty rural. It's um like less than 50,000 people. Um, and my neighborhood in Washington, D.C. is called Capitol Hill. And we're a neighborhood of about 50,000 people. And in 2015, which is the last year I have um, certified statistics, Brown County um, lost 20 people to overdoses. It's actually one of the highest rates of overdose, not just in Ohio, but in the entire country. Let me tell you, if 20 of my neighbors and friends died from overdoses, and 15 of them had died before the year before that, that's all we would be talking about. And we would expect our politicians to only be talking about that. You know, so I think one of the biggest takeaways I've done from my research is it's really important to acknowledge the opioid crisis in a way that's commensurate with its scale and suffering. This truly is the worst drug epidemic in U.S. history.
What what are people looking at in terms of solutions to this problem? So I think in terms of drug reform, um, you know, you may know this, Matt, but your listeners don't know it, is that I wrote a history of the drug war. And I, I consider myself a drug reformer and someone who's very interested in ending prohibition. I think it's the most failed social policy experiment um, in U.S. history. And drug reformers like myself tend to think in terms of public health um, harm reduction. And there are, you know, in the field of public health, harm reduction is classified in um, three different ways, primary, secondary, and tertiary. And primary harm reduction has to do with preventing it in the very first place. So in this particular context, that would have to do with, for instance, uh, ending the overprescribing of opioids. Um, and there are different ways of doing that. And we're now at the point where eight different states have um, legislation on the books. Um, actually, New Jersey just passed legislation yesterday. So now we're at nine different states that have legislation on the book, books that take down how many pills you can get if you're a first-time opioid user for acute for acute pain. So if you get that wisdom teeth extracted, you're no longer going to get a 30-day supply of Vicodin for just a wisdom tooth extraction. Um, you're going to get five to seven days, depending upon where you live in these two in these various states. So that's that's primary harm reduction. Secondary harm reduction, which I don't think gets any attention at all, has to do with interdicting early. So when training our primary care physicians to screen for and detect addiction and dependence and training them in how to taper people off of opioids, you would be horrified and amazed if I told you how freely physicians in the United States prescribe opioids and at the very same time, how poorly trained they are in detecting addiction and dependence and trying to taper people off these drugs. It's totally irresponsible and it has got to change. And then tertiary harm reduction, um, which is where I focus a lot of my energy and attention these days, has to do with, that's like frontline, let's limit the damage kind of stuff. So needle exchange programs or safe injection sites are very um, good examples of tertiary harm reduction. That's when the problem is already kind of fully blown and doing its damage, and you're just trying to limit the scope of that damage. So I'm thinking about for, you know, uh, folks that are listening to this and are, are seeing their, uh, and I think the way that it happens, at least the way that I'm experiencing it is, you know, you kind of hear it in the news a few times and then yeah. every, every so often you get a, you get something that's just really close to home. Um, but, but if, if this is something that a person cares about um, in a, in a state like Ohio or Pennsylvania or West Virginia or, or anywhere, really, um, where do you think they should spend th- their time? What would have the biggest impact? So in Ohio and in most states, there are standing orders to prescribe naloxone to anyone who wants it. Now, that means like it's called like third party prescribing. And most often those um, those standing orders. So a standing order is just like everybody in the state just got that prescription. Like normally you would need a physician to write a prescription for you for a certain drug. And the standing order says everybody in the state just got this prescription. And naloxone is an opioid antagonist. And it's very effective. Thank God. It's very effective 
in reversing overdoses. And if people are in opioid ravaged counties, my recommendation to them is to discover the specific standing um, order in their state and learn whether they or friends are eligible to get naloxone and to have naloxone on hand. And you can have a house training session um, in naloxone. Very often, pharmacies will agree to give house in-house training sessions on how to administer naloxone because it's kind of intimidating. Nobody wants to, you know, first of all, nobody wants to be in the position to have to administer a life-saving technology. But if you are in that position, you want to know that you at least have some basic knowledge of how to do it. And naloxone is trained to be easy to use, but I think it's it's worthwhile to get people at a certain comfort level. So that's one idea is to just discover the standing order that's in your state, discover who meets the threshold for getting naloxone, and then just get your hands on some naloxone and, and organizing a, tra- a training session. And, you know, when you go to the bathroom in a fast food restaurant, you could easily encounter an overdose because addicts, typically go to public places in order to shoot up because they're afraid of overdosing and they want to be in public as opposed to at home where no one will find them, you know, until it's too late. Hmm. So that's one idea. Yeah. that Yeah. And they could even folks could talk to their church or their community groups or whatever to, um, to, to, to organize trainings on that. I think there'd be, I think I would know some people that would be interested in that. So that, that's really helpful. Are, are any other ideas like that? I think the real practical stuff is what Yeah, 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 yeah. people are looking for. Yeah. I think a lot of the listeners um, to your show are, are well into the territory of, of tertiary harm reduction. That by the way, doesn't um, mean that primary, especially primary harm reduction isn't worth their while as well. So I would recommend um, either you yourself as a constituent or through an organized um, group that you already have, reaching out to your state legislators and understanding what the prescribing laws are in your um, in your particular neck of the woods. It, it shocks the hell out of me that Ohio does not have mandatory prescribing guidelines at this particular um, point. All of New England does and um, Ohio's neighbor, Pennsylvania does. And I don't get what Ohio's up to. So I think that kind of organized outreach to state legislators. But I think it's also, um, you know, this is a tricky thing. And and actually, your listeners will have more to say to me on this subject, and I'd be very interested to learn what they have to say. The world of treatment and substance use disorder treatment is a very murky world. We have a lot of um, very good outfits, and we have a lot of maybe not so great outfits. And then we have a few pretty dubious outfits coming in there and offering treatment. And sometimes, you know, and these these treatment groups can be um, under the auspices of a religious group, or they can be under the auspices of, you know, just a private for-profit operator. I would think it's a huge service um, for organizers to identify the treatment programs in their area that have worked for the addicts themselves you know, treatment programs that know the lay of the land and, you know, hold fundraisers for those groups, develop collaborative relationships with those groups, but even just know who those groups are because one of your friends and one of your, you know, someone in your social network will need that information um, if they don't already. And so I think identifying the best treatment options in your area, it is one of the things to do. And then finally, the last suggestion I would make 
is I think it's critically important for especially rural organizers to reach out to their congressional representatives um, and try to stave off any repeal of the Affordable Care Act. I think that's one of the most meaningful things you can do. It's, it's actually unconscionable to me that the United States Congress is contemplating repealing the Affordable Care Act in the midst of the worst drug epidemic in U.S. history. I mean, that just strikes me as, you know, we just callous and irresponsible in the extreme. Yeah, no, I, I, I definitely hear that. And uh, I've never seen folks so organized uh, as they are here in Ohio um, uh, around uh, the recess. And they're using the indivisible groups resources. And um, I great. think this is a this is a really great uh, um, layer to that. Um, but I have one, one, one last question, and this is kind of a, a question I end the uh, conversation on every time. But it's especially in this in this area, what what really gives you hope? Where do you what what keeps you optimistic? What keeps me optimistic at this point? Because be, <laughs> to be honest with you, Matt, um, I really experience a lot of deep anguish um, about the opioid crisis. Um, before we went. Um, into recording, you were telling me a story, um, you know, close to your network. I've, every time I have a conversation these days, whether it's with a reporter or someone else, I just hear these stories all the, all the time. I read these stories all the time. Um, you know, these communities are suffering and their suffering has not gone acknowledged. Um, it seems to me, what gives me hope now is that at least, that suffering is starting to register in ways that the national media and the political establishment will have to pay attention to. So the Wall Street Journal reached out after I wrote the Oxy electorate piece. They now have an entire team of reporters um, devoted to reporting on the opioid epidemic. Now we have the New York Times organizing a team. I have two or three interviews on the opioid epidemic like per week now. Um, so I think there's a lot of... Um, churning, you know, within especially the media establishment when it comes to kind of raising awareness. And many times when I'm interviewed on it, I, I tell them the same thing I'm about to tell you, which is it's it's very appropriate for us to be ramping up our awareness and our organizing and our activism because the 2015 numbers that shocked the hell out of this country um, when they finally were certified by the, um, the CDC the 2016 numbers will exceed those by a lot, not by a little, but by a lot. So in 2015, we learned for the first time that drug overdoses um, exceeded fatal car crashes as the number one cause of acute preventable death. What we're going to find in 2016 is those numbers will shoot up by as much as a third and maybe even more than that. Though I can't, you know, that will just rock you know, I'm already rocked by it because people have done the extrapolations and predictions. But when those numbers get finalized, it will rock the political establishment to its core because those are casualty levels. Those are fatalities that we typically only see in an active war. So, you know, we're fighting a war here. It's a war that's not been acknowledged in the way that it needs to, but we are fighting a war here. And what gives me hope or what gives me at least the glimmer of a hope is we're finally starting to see a lot of acknowledgement of just that fact. 
Well, sorry. I, I, uh, <laughs> sorry. I was I was hoping for something a little bit more optimistic, but I think that's it's real. You know what you're what you're saying is real, and you know I'm sorry. That... You know, Matt, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but um, I I always do these kinds of um, empathy exercises. I think that I. I already have a lot of empathy, but, you know, I always try to imagine what these figures would mean um, if they were in my life every day. But the New York Times published a story about two weeks ago on Montgomery County, Ohio, in your neck of the woods. And since January 1st, Montgomery County, Ohio has had 163 overdoses just since January 1st. They have run out of room for the bodies. You know, the coroner's office have has to now rent out rooms in various funeral parlor parlors. And those funeral parlors have to have naloxone on hand because they might get a desting of fentanyl and overdose themselves, you know, from somebody's clothes or something. So, you know, you'll have to forgive me a little bit um, because we are, we are actually in the darkest days of the opioid epidemic. It just takes a while for the numbers to catch up. Um, so I hope that I, I know that I just gave you a very door vision um, but that's where I am right now because that's where the opioid crisis is. These are the worst. Days. These are the worst days, right? Well, I think that um, this is something that our our audience um, cares a lot about, and um, it's it's on a lot of people's minds. So, um, I definitely want to check in with you over the next few months. Maybe we'll we'll loop back when those numbers come out. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and jump into those a little bit more. Um, and then I know there was some work done at the USDA with some folks uh, where they actually started, you know, creating a task force or whatever. And um, I want to I want to get into those networks a little bit and see, see, um, you know, what's working and, and where people can be effective. But um, I think yeah. this is something more that that, you know, this group needs to be to be looking at, especially uh, for those of us that live in places like Ohio, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, or uh, in maybe Wisconsin as well, but in West Virginia. So, um, so if, yeah, if you're, if you're available, we'll definitely uh, follow up and uh, would love to get your take on the numbers when they come out. Yes. And my invitation to your listeners is very real. I would love to hear from them um, about what treatment and what other things are going on in their area, because this is a story that is where they are. Um, and I think we're not going to, you know, we're not going to solve it until we actually confront it and, and understand the reality. So what's what's the best way for people to follow up and uh, take a look at your work or, or reach out? So they can find me on Twitter very easily. I'm at Kay Friedel, K-F-R-Y-D-L. And I um, post on the opioid. We follow each other, Matt, on Twitter. And I know you can attest to the fact that I post on the opioid crisis quite often. Um, and I'm always looking for stories. And actually, I just recently, um, in fact, just today, I resolved to start um, – drawing attention to local news reporters. And Ohio has a lot of great local papers, by the way. And I'm, I'm just starting to draw attention to local news reporters um, who are covering the opioid crisis, among other things. So if you guys have some tips on local reporters who are covering the opioid crisis, please let me know. I will, for sure. I'll keep an eye out for it. But uh, thanks so much for, for taking the time and, and for talking with us. It's my pleasure. Thanks, Matt.
I'm Matt Hildreth, and you've been listening to Flyover Folk, brought to you today by Haymakers Community Engagement Consultants and RuralOrganizing.org. Our music today and every day comes from Brutal Bear, based out of Wichita, Kansas. For more information about them and this podcast, visit flyoverfolk.com.